he ended up with the hair and his conclusion after looking at it was that it is definitely primate hair and it's not human. It's also not from any known primate. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature. Real story is where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Caroline Ballard. On this episode, we'll hear about Bigfoot, or more precisely, Sasquatch. That's the Native American word, meaning wild man. To record this story, we traveled on dirt roads to the foot of Wyoming's Wind River Range, where a Sasquatch is reported to live. It's also where John Meinzinski lives. In 1967, John was a college biology student. That's when a magazine article came out that everyone in his department started passing around. It was on Sasquatch with photographs, stills from uh, movie footage. The people involved in the sighting, the the cameraman and the horse packer who was with him, uh, seemed to be credible. Very interesting, but I can't say I, I believed in the subject at that time. Like most biologists, John was skeptical about Sasquatch. After college, he got a job as a warden for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. He patrolled the back country on horseback for weeks at a time. Usually, the only people he ran into were sheep herders. They had their own Sasquatch legends. Their term for it amongst all the sheep herders that worked in the Wind Rivers was the old man. And they had stories about them stealing sheep occasionally and running off with them and spooking the horses. One night, John was camped out alone in the back country. It was a forest camp, and something came by that was breathing at a very slow rate, and I thought it was a bear. That would be the obvious thing to think, because it came to a bacon stain I had in the tent. It was a forest service tent I got out of the warehouse, and somebody had spilled bacon grease all over the side of it. So I was sort of anticipating a bear problem. And the moon was coming up in the east. It was a wall tent, so it was tall, taller than I was. So it was over six foot two. And there was a really nice, perfect shadow of of something coming into this bacon stain and poking its nose into it, probably licking it. I assumed it was a bear, and I had a 357 Magnum handgun with me. Had that out. So this thing was poking its nose in the side of my tent, and I hit it with the back of my hand and made a yelping sound. It ran off, but it didn't go very far. It went about 20 feet, and I could hear it breathing in these pines, thick enough you don't walk through it comfortably, but it'd be a great place to hide. So this thing was in there and breathing, and then 40 minutes later or so, it came back and did the same thing, and I hit it with my hand again, and it ran back. And for half hour or 45 minutes, I could still hear it breathing back there. Very resonant, deep breathing like an elk. I would say just imagine somebody snoring, very low-pitched snoring, both on the in-breathing and the out-breathing. It came back a third time, and I uh, this time... The shadow or the silhouette of it in the moonlight, which was almost a full moon that night. So it was a very good shadow. There was no wind blowing. Um, it was standing up and was over the top of the tent and cast a, a shadow over it. I can see an arm swinging and it was walking on two legs. And then it stopped alongside of the tent and there was an indentation in the 
wall of the tent, so I hit that indentation. And this time I hit something hard instead of something soft. So I'm pretty sure I hit a kneecap. And uh, this hand came down over the top of the tent. So I saw the silhouette of a hand that was not the size of mine, but it had an opposed thumb like a human hand, not at all like a bear. And the hand was twice the width of mine with an open palm. It was well over foot uh, wide from little finger to thumb. And it was hairy. You could see the silhouette of hair between the fingers. Anyway, it fell over on the tent and uh, had me pinned down by my legs. And then it got up and ran off behind those trees again. So now my tent was demolished and I crawled out of it and built the fire that was in the fire ring in front of the tent. And just sat there and watched where the uh, breathing was coming from because I wanted to see what this was. And then I started to doze off and woke up to the sound of something hitting the ground. And I uh, looked up and didn't see anything. And then I saw a pine cone get lobbed from where the breathing was coming from in my direction. And in the next three quarters of an hour, there were about 20 to 25 pine cones that got thrown at me. More correctly, I think they were being thrown at the campfire because a lot of them landed in the fire and around it. And the whole time I could hear that breathing. Eventually, the creature left. John couldn't hear it breathing anymore. In the morning, John looked for tracks, but the ground was thick with pine duff, and there were no tracks to be seen. When it came down, I told my boss about it. He got up, closed the door to his office, and we had a private conversation, which basically was about um, other sightings that people have had in that area that summer. At that point, he suggested that, although the Forest Service couldn't justify paying anybody to really investigate an animal that doesn't exist, there were reports coming into that office, and it made the newspapers nationwide at that time, 1972, the local ranger was getting requests from big game hunters who wanted to come out and find out the location of the last sighting so that they could collect the ultimate trophy. That put the ranger in a precarious position of, well, what if this is a guy in a monkey suit and he gets killed? The Forest Service is implicated in the murder because they told the person where to go hunt for it. So on that justification, I was asked to go and follow up on some of these sightings and and get the full report and try to come up with physical evidence and find out if it's a guy in a monkey suit. John spent the next year interviewing locals who said they'd seen Sasquatch. He also looked for physical evidence and finally found some. A hunter claimed to have shot a Sasquatch. Injured, it ran away. It left some hair on the ground. I took it to the Game and Fish Department, uh, who had a forensic veterinarian. All he could tell me officially was that uh, the hair did not belong to a species native to Wyoming. But unofficially, he said, uh, you know, primate hair has a distinctive look to it, and this has that look. The Game and Fish veterinarian recommended John take the hair to the University of Wyoming for a primatologist's opinion. He said that he was not an expert in hair, but he would send it to the most notable expert in primate hair in the world, which was Walter Birkby. And he was a primatologist who was known for his expertise in primate hair identification. And, as George told me before he sent the sample off, should warn you that this man also has been outspoken on the subject of Bigfoot. And he 
would love to have any suspect hairs from a Bigfoot to be sent to him so he could disprove this myth. So he ended up with the hair and his conclusion after looking at it was that it is definitely primate hair and it's not human. It's also not from any known primate. So that's the reason I'm still interested. Most of the game and fish people I worked with with my initial sighting were very interested in the subject and did follow up on it, but they did it very quietly and would deny any interest in the subject officially or publicly because it affects your job opportunities. Why did you decide to, to be public about it? Well, I think because I was young and ignorant when this happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I, in my naive state, thought that scientists would be interested in this, especially after the hair simple turned up to be uh, uh, an unknown species. You know, this might be the most interesting wildlife project to come along, uh, but it turned out it's not that way. I was threatened with my job by uh, a higher up in the game and fish department, as was the uh, head veterinarian for game and fish at that time, and uh, another person who expressed interest in it, who I won't name. We were threatened with our jobs if our names were ever even connected with the word Bigfoot in the future. The other people I know that were interested in this subject never talked about it again openly. But I made the decision that I could never work for the Game and Fish Department because of that. John kept following up on reported sightings. As he asked people about their experiences, he found many were reluctant to share their stories. But some people were willing to talk. One woman's story stuck with John ever since. She's a musician and would learn her repertoire in the mountains by going hiking. And she was on one of her summer hiking uh, tours of Colorado wilderness. Well, she stayed out for a month at a time and just camp and practice her flute. And one time she was practicing in a tent and thought she heard a stick break behind her tent. So she got her pepper spray out, thinking it was a, possibly a bear, crawled out in front of her tent and had to look over the top of her tent to see what it was behind it. And she was face to face with a very large, hairy, human-like face, which she described as a human face, but with a body that was completely covered in hair, except for the circle around the eyes, nose, and mouth. Uh, it was about uh, between seven and a half and eight feet tall. It had a very compassionate look on its face, so she's, she said it was a confusing time for her. She was not necessarily afraid as much as awestruck by the sight of something that human-like and that large. And she feels it was drawn in by her music. She had a very close and good sighting 12 feet away, and it lasted a long time. She thought um, close to a minute where they just stared at each other which is a very long time for Sasquatch sighting. And then it turned around, and she said when it turned around, she realized it was not human, at least not the way we define human, turned around very gracefully for something that weighed close to a 1,000 pounds. And it was so graceful in its movement, she knew that a human couldn't move that way. And then when it moved aside, another one was behind it, which was smaller, and she took to be the mate, the female. 
and it stared at her for a long time too. And then it wheeled around also gracefully and they both walked to the edge of the meadow and stood next to each other, looked back at her. And she couldn't move, she said, for quite a few minutes after that because she just didn't know what happened to her. So she was walking back and forth, pondering this whole experience. And she had picked up a branch off of a spruce tree and was just kind of working it with her fingers as something to do while she was concerned about this sighting and what it meant. The musician fiddled with the branch for a while. It was unique, with two smaller branches coming off the main stem. Then she set it down. It was time to leave anyway, so she packed up her camp and spent the day hiking back to her car. She arrived late, so she spent the night near a picnic table. And then in the morning she got up, and on a boulder next to the picnic table was the same branch she had been twirling around. Listening to people's stories and reading more about Sasquatch, John found that the stories had patterns. Leaving tokens, like the spruce branch was one. Sasquatch apparently likes to do that. But another pattern emerged. Some stories told of Sasquatch capturing humans and keeping them. There's a report of this happening to a man in British Columbia. So he lived with a family of Sasquatch in British Columbia for about a week. As a pet? As a pet. The children played with him. The young Sasquatches. Fascinating story. The multiple sightings and reports, the scientific and cultural ridicule, none of this is new historically. John points out several animals have been sneered at before being accepted by science. One is the okapi, an African creature that looks like a cross between a giraffe and a zebra. It's rare, but it does exist. Another animal is the uh, gorilla. Was not accepted. Several hundred years went by where people described seeing gorillas and drew pictures of them. And the uh, Royal Academy in England just, just didn't accept it and ridiculed people who went down looking for an ape, basically. But it was described as an animal with a human face. And there were lots of paranormal-associated stories to go along with it. That these things could get into your dreams and they could, uh, they could control your mind and they were part man and part beast. And now we know and accept that lowland gorillas and uh, mountain gorillas exist. The paranormal aspects have gone away. But people were afraid of even looking for these things. It's only a matter of time before Sasquatch is, is discovered in the same sort of way that the gorillas were. So what do you do with that? You just say, I'm not going to believe in it. We'll put those in a drawer and never look at them again. Or, I believe, if you're a true scientist, you open the drawer and you start investigating. What is it about Sasquatch that captures people and captures maybe their imagination? (laughs) Well, I think uh, many of us are fascinated with the unknown. And this is one of those subjects which is almost entirely unknown, except for stories, anecdotal stories, dating back, I might add, uh, thousands and thousands of years amongst Native Americans. How can there be such a big species, you know, seven feet tall, that's still undiscovered? 
Well, that's hard one to. That's one of the mysteries. It's a hard one to answer. We can make guesses. The most common guess the anthropologists give is that we're dealing with an intelligent um, being that's probably very human-like and more skilled at evading its enemies than we are, because it actually lives in the woods. That's one answer. Uh, and, and number two answer probably has to go with it is that we're dealing with a very low population size. So what if there are only five in the Wind River range, but they happen to be intelligent and very skilled at avoiding their enemies? The number one enemy would probably be human beings or maybe grizzlies. I think there's this fear that there's something there that um, we can't ever really completely know, kind of like a ghost. I think people poo-poo ghost stories, you know, unless they've seen one commonly because they're human but you can't really they're not tangible you can't really grasp it or you can't understand it completely and for some reason that makes people fearful i think approaching it though as a scientist you see it differently as uh, you know everything in science starts out that way you don't have to fear it it starts out as an unknown and then you you systematically look for more information until you can document it and understand it The fact that this particular species resembles a human uh, and we haven't identified it yet makes people anxious and I'm not sure why. And you'd like to, to maybe be captured by one? Well in a friendly way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've lived in the woods enough I have maybe a little overconfident that I could eventually escape. Maybe not, but I, I would rather do that and document it, then fire a gun at one. Our storyteller was John Meinzinski. I'm Caroline Ballard. The show's producers are Aaron Jones, Anna Rader, and Micah Schweitzer. The theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.